going to be more academic. Um, sometimes messages go more to the heart. Sometimes they go to the mind. Sometimes they're in between. This one is definitely going to be more academic and thinking about things. That's why I have Norm up here. Um, I just realized how that all works out. So Norm oh teaches uh, our theology class here at church. It's, uh, three, it's six semesters, and it's on how to think about your faith. Um, Sorry, get this a little bit out of your way. Um, and it goes through theology, and it goes through philosophy, and church history pulls it all together. And uh, if you're thinking, wow, that is nothing I'd ever do, we've had, what, over 200 people go through uh, that yeah, first class, absolutely. 250, yep. something like that. It's made for the average person going through that class, so it's geared that way. But uh, I've had Norm come up here because we're going to talk, talk <laughs> church history. Uh, today, we're looking at probably one of the most pivotal verses in church history, which is an interesting thing to think about. The most pivotal verse, you would say, is this I, Romans uh, 1.17. Romans 1.17, the lead-up is 16, which Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of God because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentiles. For in the gospel... A righteousness from God, here's verse 17, in the gospel, a righteousness from God has been revealed, a righteousness that is from first to last. Now, you may have a version that says from faith to faith, and we'll explain that. Just as it is written, or as it is written, the righteous, or the just, will live by faith. Now, this is a key verse because about 500 years ago, there was a monk who came across this, and this is what sparked what we would now call the Reformation. And we're going to talk about that monk here in a few minutes. Paul says something interesting when he starts this off. He says, from faith to faith, from first to last. He says, righteous, the righteous, I'll just abbreviate it, righteous will live by faith, right? From the beginning of faith to whenever it ends, this is how it works out. The righteous live by faith. So when did faith begin? Well, faith began here, back in the Garden of Eden. Uh, there's Adam, kind of, and, and here's Eve. Uh, gave Adam a tail, sorry. Um, here we go. Here's Eve. Eve's a little bit taller. Uh, she's out in front a little bit, but that's okay. It's all good. Adam and Eve in the garden. There's her hair. Um, and what God says to them in the garden is this, faith, right? He says, this is who I am, and this is how you should understand me, and this is what I say you are, and who, who you are, and how we relate, and these are my words of what you should do. Have faith, believe this. And then out of that faith, these are the uh, obedience, this is the work that comes from it. And you see, faith is from the very beginning. He defines it that way. This is who I am. This is what I say about you, me, and how you should live life. I want you to believe this. What happens in the garden is very quickly, it goes bad, right? Goes bad because they say, no, 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 we're going to define faith differently. And this is, there's a relationship here between these two. You can't separate them. They're, they're connected. And they said, oh, no, 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 no. We, we can separate them. We can separate those two. And they said, well, and then we're going to actually, we're going to take it outside of that realm, and we're going to say this is what faith is over here. Faith says I can be God, and I can determine right and wrong, and I'm in charge of my own life, and live that way. And you see the consequences of that, the work, right? The work is they eat of the fruit, 
and all of a sudden they're ashamed and they're trying to cover themselves up. And now they're in this process of trying to restore this Eden, right? But they can't because they can't do it because they realize they're not God, but they don't really want to admit that. And, and thus you have human history. Roll on through human history. God is starting to, to say these, whisper these echoes of salvation. And you see different foreshadows of what's to come. Christ comes, the cross, what we just celebrated. And Christ comes and he, he dies on the cross, our sacrifice, right? Our, our punishment all on there. We just had communion. And Paul comes and he says, this, this is it. Righteousness by faith in the cross. And, and the church is established, uh, righteousness. The, the righteous will live by faith. Faith in Jesus is the only way to salvation, period. That is a big marker, too. It's How could I drop that? Marker. I'm all excited. So the church gets started. God comes back, and he, he says, Jesus comes back, and he says, no, 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 let's get this all right. This is who I am. This is who you are, and this is what I want you to believe about me and how to live this out. Now obey. And Paul has already said in Romans chapter 1, obedience that comes through faith. He's already said that. So the church starts off this way, and the problem is, historically, what we see happen in human history is, is drift, right? We drift from that. Always drifting from faith in God and who he is and what he says about himself and us and how to live. We drift from it. And so I've asked Norm to come in and say, okay, Norm, talk us through church history. And here's where it gets scholastic to some degree because if you don't know history, you're bound to what? Repeat it. You're going to do it over and over again. So talk to us what immediately starts to happen. Paul's sure. writing this book, Romans. <laughs> Take yeah. it away. So um, a caveat to this, something we need to understand because we, we fall into this trap um, as, as people outside of the Roman Catholic Church, right? Um, Protestants fall into this, this trap sometimes in that when we talk about church history, we start to think, well, you know, when we look back, it's kind of an us versus them approach, right? The bad things that happened in church history, well, that was the Catholic Church's doing, and we didn't have part of that, right? We look at it almost as two parallel things. Well, there was always two churches, us who did everything right and had the right answers, and then the Catholic Church kept messing up, right? And what we need to understand is when we go all the way back to when, you know, Christ is talking to Peter and he's talking about establishing his church, building his church on that foundation, we see the church started in Acts and being raised up. All, all the way through, those things that happened in the early church, those things that happened in the Middle Ages, those things that went on with what we would say, oh, that was the Catholic church, that's part of our heritage too. We look back at where did we come from? Where did the church come from? That's all part of this. That's part of our history too. So what I want you guys to understand is when we take a look through church history here, don't look at it as, well, it's us versus them and the good things that happen and the bad things that happen. It's part of our history, our heritage at the church, okay? All right, so church history. We're going to look at drift. We're going to, there's a lot of, un unfortunately, there's a lot of things we could look at with where the church has drifted from this balance of faith and works. But we're going to take two of them today, and the first one we're going to hit is the Reformation. Why? Because as Scott was saying, it's probably the most significant the last 2,000 years, and it had such a long buildup and drift, okay? And to really get a picture of how it got to where it got, we need to go all the way back to really when Romans is being written, when Paul's writing the letters to these other churches, because he's writing in many cases because this drift to increase works was already happening. The churches were already 
changing this balance. What they were doing was they were drifting away from this and back towards justifying themselves by works, by traditions, by the old law, right? They were reverting back to elements of Judaism. And Paul's writing to a lot of these churches saying, stop, you need to guard yourself against that, against justification by anything else. He's fighting for this balance here. And so we see that drift so early in the church, and Paul tries to write and, and bring that balance back in, okay? Start fast-forwarding through the, the church. The early years, first couple hundred years of the church, it's really not all that organized. The church is, is under constant movement, persecution, establishing authority in the church, establishing some structure, and, and, and Christianity is growing. But it's really not until, you know, about the mid-fourth century when Christianity becomes actually a legal religion um, to be practiced. You can go practice it without the persecution anymore. Constantine does that. And then his son eventually makes it not just legal, but the official religion of the church. And why that's significant is because you go from having, uh, you know, a, a large and growing body of Christians within the Roman Empire to now you've got all these people that are just pulled in. And now you were part of the Roman Empire with whatever faith now, and now your official religion is Christianity. And so you now have millions of people who are now Christians, and you can't just flip a switch and say, well, now I believe everything that Christianity stands for. You start to bring in your baggage, your traditions, and everything else, which will affect this balance. And so we see through the early part of the church, right, the first couple hundred years, what the church really is trying to do, once, especially once it's legalized and official, is develop doctrine around these things. And the church develops some doctrine around the works part, right? And it actually is divided into two things. Do we have that yeah. there still? So the church develops this works doctrine, and, and they divide it, develop it two ways. They say there's two types of works. There's the works of the sacraments, and then there's these other good works, and the way these are developed is sacraments, the work of the sacraments are actually instrumental to salvation. The work of the sacraments are required for salvation. These bring you back into a state of justification or righteousness. And then the other part of this doctrine they developed is the good works, okay? So good things you, you do as part of the church, part of the body of the church. And in doing those, the church administers these things called indulgences. Now what that does is that doesn't guarantee or affect your salvation. The original intent of it was to um, relieve temporal or temporary punishment on earth and in purgatory, to take some of that punishment away. But it didn't affect salvation, okay? It didn't guarantee salvation. But sacraments did. And so even at this point, a couple hundred years after Paul fought so hard for keeping the works faith balance, we see the church is already changing that. They're already increasing the works part because the sacraments are things we have to do for salvation. It's a work we have to do. And I want to fast forward, so we're going to keep jumping around here. I want to go and read you a quote from the 6th century. So we've got this bishop of Rome in the 6th century, one of the probably more famous early bishops, Bishop Gregory I or Gregory the Great. And he's speaking on this, and, and, and he, this is where this piece really changes. And he says this, The greater our sins, the more we must do to make up for them the more careful we must be to avoid them in the future. I want to read one more time. The greater our sins, the more we must do to make up for them. And then he goes on and says, whether we've done enough to atone for them, we cannot know until after death. Meritous works are deeds involving sacrifice, suffering, almsgiving, practices, and prayer. 
So Gregory's saying, he's changing this. We're in the 6th century, right? 500-some plus years past Romans, and he, this has already evolved so much. He's now saying, what do we have to do to atone for our sins? This starts, where this started growing, now it's getting out of balance. Now the work side of that equation is just growing, and it's really, the drift picks up pace here. And as we're moving along, so that's 6th century, there's a couple key things we need to understand that affect this drift and really push it over the edge in the Reformation. A couple things that happen is, one, Gregory, along with that, makes a statement where he starts to make official doctrine around this idea of papal supremacy. And what papal supremacy is, is it's affirming the official ultimate authority of the papacy, the leadership of the church. And what that means is when you say ultimate authority, that means the leadership of the church, the head of the church has ultimate authority over everything, including ultimate authority over the word of God, scripture, and elements of salvation. Okay? And so he's made this thing. We start to see this come out of bounds, right? The works part come out of bounds. And authority, ultimate authority handed over to the Pope. And we wonder ourselves, okay, how is that significant? It's significant because just after that, the church establishes another doctrine, um, which is no salvation outside the church. Okay? Extra ecclesia nulla salus. It's no salvation unless you're part of, you are a member of the church. And here's where these get stacked together. Okay? Follow with me now. So if salvation is dependent upon your sacramental works, and to even do these sacramental works, you have to be part of the church of which the papacy has ultimate authority to administer the sacraments. We now, as a body, as a church, start looking to the leadership of the church saying, well, salvation is through our works, but in your hands to administer it to us. We start looking and saying, tell us what we need to do for salvation. And the lady, the church, really it takes a step back. We become a little lazy and just, well, okay, we want salvation, great. Just tell us, church, tell us what we've got to do. And this thing just goes, the drift really escalates, just goes out of bounds. And we see for so many years after the 6th century, nobody really checking the church. We just accept it. We, we allow the leadership to have all of this power and authority. And unfortunately, in any instance, even inside the church, when we give that much power and authority to a single entity, it gets corrupt. And so I think the culmination of that corruption really starts to happen in the 1200s, mid-1200s. The church has this council, Council of Toulouse, where they come through and they actually take away scripture from the laity an official proclamation of it. They actually come through and say the laity is not permitted to have the text of the Old or the New Testament. You guys can't have it. It's out of your hands. And he goes further and says, uh, we, we further declare that they can't have any translation of it, right? Anything other than the official uh, Latin translation of, the, of Scripture. And so they've now said this is the only Scripture you can have only the church leadership has it, and they'll interpret it and tell you what to believe and what to do. And that's kind of the foreground as we start heading into this time of Reformation. So we've got this idea where the church has ultimate authority, ultimate power. The works thing has gone out of bounds, and we as a lady are just saying, tell us what to do, right? 
And eventually it comes, we finally see in the 14th century, somebody start to stand up against the church a little bit. Well, and even actually, if you go back in church sure. history, there were reformations that happened. There's reformations that are happening. And this, what they would do is they would... There's small groups yeah. that are happening and popping up, but the problem is the authority of the church is so large, it's so imposing that the church basically quenches those things. Yeah. Puts them out. And, and, and in putting them out, the people don't necessarily leave. They'll either be excommunicated or they're indoctrinated in. They're brought in. Right? And with the absolute authority tied in with the political system, you it's, could not only kick them out of the church, you could really just literally kill them. You could kill them. You take away salvation. You have, with that authority piling up, ultimate authority in the church who administers sacraments required for salvation, you remove them from the church. They have no salvation. You have authority over basically all of their life. That's the, that's the corruption that's led into the church so far away from what was taught in Romans. And so we get, in the 14th century, we actually have this guy, Wycliffe, you may have heard of him, right? Englishman, pushes for an English translation, uh, right? A, a common, understandable translation in his language of Scripture. But he also stands up for Romans 1.17. He, what he does is he looks at what's going on with this works piece, and he fights for righteousness from nothing other than Christ. It's fighting back to the original intent, back to what was there in Romans. And so he stands up against the church for this particular topic. And then on the heels of him, that you've got this guy, Hughes, um, also in Europe. And he starts fighting not only that fight, but he starts taking on the papal supremacy and ultimate authority thing and starts saying, no, 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 the church doesn't have ultimate authority. Ultimate authority is found in the word of God. We should look nowhere else for it. And so these guys come up, and ultimately that ends in his death at the hands of the church. Um, but that's the 14th century, and that's the status and, and, and or the, the, yeah, the status of the church, the nature of where it's at, leading into the events with Martin Luther. And, and I like to think of it as kind of this confluence, this, this bringing together of three things that had heightened themselves at the perfect time to really light the match of the Reformation. You have the authority of the church has grown to this level that, that far exceeds the original intent. And then you have the idea of works here has gotten to a level of corruption to where it's, it reaches its peak with this guy, Tetzel, going around and these, on the other side, indulgences that you would get for good works. Now you're not even having to do the good works. He's going around selling them. Under the authority of the church, he begins selling indulgences, selling a way to get for remission of your sins. And eventually tying, right, the church will stand against it, but tying salvation to it. So you can buy out the punishment of your sin. You can buy your way for yourself and others through purgatory. So we get this heightened sense there. We have authority heightened. That's taking place. We get ultimate corruption in the works of the church. And then you get this monk in Germany who's reading Romans 1.17. And he's reading Romans 1.17 in the Latin and when he reads it, and he's reading the Latin of this idea of justification, in the Latin it's this idea of being made righteous, right? You're being made righteous. And so how do we make ourselves righteous? We make ourselves righteous through the sacraments, through the works that we do. And he's struggling with it because he's going, how am I ever going to live by faith if I'm in this constant cycle of being unrighteous and unrighteous and unrighteous and having to go through the sacraments to be made righteous? How will I ever live by faith? And then he starts reading the Greek and looking at justification. And it's like, it's like the flashpoint for him. The light bulb goes on. 
because he sees the original intent, the, the, the way this is defined is that we're not made righteous by anything we do. We're not made righteous, justified by any of these works. We're declared righteous. We are declared righteous not by anyone who has righteous, not by ourselves. We're declared righteous by the one who is. We're declared righteous by Christ. Not of anything we've done, but of the good works Christ did for us. And so Martin Luther, he has this, and this, like I said, it's the flashpoint for everything. He goes on to, to preach this, bringing this balance back together. This idea in Romans 1.17 of what it means to be justified, to be declared righteous, not by anything we've done. And him and the reformers, they go on, you know, Calvin and Zwingli, these guys go on to fight the church for this, fight for it. And eventually the church takes a stance. The Roman Catholic Church becomes the official Roman Catholic Church. They excommunicate them. They take a hard stance on church authority. And the reformers move off fighting for this piece here. To put a balance back to faith and works. Right? And I would like to say that as we diverted there, that the Protestant church got everything right. That now that we understood it, we kept this perfect balance, right? We've got it. We messed it up once when we were a new church and Paul had to write these things. But we got it back together finally with the Reformation, so we've kept faith and works in balance. But it's not what happened. In fact, we see just 200 years later in the midst of the Enlightenment. Enlightenment's this period where we had philosophy just, just reigning on high. We had science just flying through uh, evolution and, and progressing. We had cultural changes everywhere. And what happened was that started affecting the church. The church started looking at this and saying, well, we see all these great things that's happening around us, these philosophical movements and truths that are being developed. We see science solving all these problems and culture is getting better. And so we say, how does that define this balance of faith and works? And what happens is we get the liberal church movement, which takes this faith element, and it says, well, this faith element, in fact, anything that's supernatural, if it doesn't conform to the realities of science, if it doesn't conform to what makes culture seem progressive and good, if it doesn't go in parallel with the philosophy of the time, we're throwing this bad boy out. So it doesn't just increase or decrease. They pitch this one out altogether. And they look at the works, and they say, okay, works... If you're trying to correlate works with something that comes out of faith, if it's not a tangible work that makes society better, if it's not a tangible work that makes us more progressive, these works have to go out here as well. And so what we did was we found that the church allowed culture to influence how we see justification, how we see righteousness. And those are just two elements, right? We look back at it and we say, these are, these are two things. But one, we internally did this. We did this as a church in leadership. We came in and allowed too much power and authority to tell us what to do. Tell us all of these works we had to do to be justified. And then we see another influence where we say, let culture come in and change these. And so the reason we're presenting this and why we want you guys to think about it is, it's happened multiple times. Church history does repeat itself. And so where are we? What outside or inside influences do we need to be aware of? And how do we keep this balance? 
one of the things that we were talking about, Norm and Pastor Sean and I, is that the idea of where are we drifting? Like, what do we see happening in our culture today, uh, in America, in our area, uh, regarding drift? And, and we still see the same thing that happened back with Adam and Eve, this humanism idea. And it's, you could almost say cultural Christianity, um, which I'll do the Christ. Here we go. My professor taught me that, so it's okay. Um, at seminary, um, Christ is uh, chaos, uh, Greek yeah, or um, Greek word. Job. Yeah, there you go. Um, and it's the idea that I can determine what saves me and what not, what doesn't save me. So, have you ever, have you ever said to yourself in this journey towards Christ, um, if I do enough good works, or I'm a good enough person, or I'm just trying to have the good outweigh the bad? You ever say that or you ever hear that, that is that drift. And people would say, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm just trying to make sure I do enough good works to outweigh the bad. That, that's this. That's, that's the garden. Like, we can, we can just do this ourselves. We're God. We define what salvation is, and we're working our way towards that. That still goes on today. I'm sure if I asked you to raise your hands, you've probably heard somebody in the past year say this. I, I can do works. I can earn my way there. That drift is still here. And, and, and what's so hard is it, we drift from that because the cross is so offensive. We, we want to drift from this message because it says, no, you, you and I cannot do this. We need to be saved. Like we have no righteousness in and of ourselves. So we see that one that, that's prevalent and still going on today. And maybe you're still wrestling through that and trying to figure out, you know, how that all works out. Um, but that, that's one area of, of drift. Uh, another area of drift that we've seen, um, and I'm off my notes here. I can't remember. I got them in my in brain. But, um, um, th- this whole other idea, and we saw this with... Uh, uh, th- there's a power thing, and it's politics and power. And you saw this with the, you saw this uh, with the church. The church started to get in bed with the the politicians, the kings, the queens of their times, and the um, they, you would all of a sudden see this merging. And 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 when you start bringing power and politics within the church, it starts to corrupt the church. It just does, because your vow at this point is I've got to keep my power. Because that's how I'm making my living, and that's how I've got to get my... And, and the thing about this is, is Christ doesn't call us to keep power. He just doesn't. So what have we seen, the drift in our day and time? You see this happening on either side of the church. It doesn't matter. The civil rights movement started off of a movement where a lot of the leaders were church leaders. Martin Luther King Jr., a pastor, Right? comes up and he starts to lead this champion, uh, champion this message that comes right out of scriptural, Scripture, the equality of every human being, the dignity of every human being. And the church galvanized behind that too and said, yes, this ought not to be. But problem is it morphs just like any movement, spiritual movement will, a spiritual movement will impact politics. But the problem is at some point it becomes its own institution because that's what we do. And the institution then becomes the thing to live for. And the institution all of a sudden starts to tell the other people outside of Scripture, hey, this is how you should live, and it starts to contradict Scripture. You've seen that happen with the civil rights movement. You've seen that happen with fundamentalism. You've seen that happen now with evangelicalism. Those were two recent movements birthed 
by a spiritual movement, by the Holy Spirit, I believe, to bring reformation to the church and culture that eventually became political, that eventually began to tell the believers, this is how you should live, and leaders who were then started to drift away from the word of God and say, no, believe us above the word of God, do this. And how do you know a movement is starting to go south? How do you know it's starting to drift? When they start to tell their people who follow them, fear these people, hate these people, do not compromise on any of this stuff. You hear that. And, and meanwhile, Christ is saying, love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Humble yourselves. Submit. The greatest in the kingdom is the smallest, right? The least. To, and you see political movements that say, no, no, we got to scrap and fight for our own and we got to hate this group of people and we got to put off that and we cannot work with those people and they start cutting off arms and legs just to win. And it's like, this, how is that biblical? And we see that and you see that and it happens across the board. It's not just us, it's a worldwide thing. It's a human thing, right? Number three is uh, reactionism. I don't know if I can, we don't know whether this is a word or not, but we're calling it a word. Reaction, and we just do an ism on it. Um, <laughs> so reactionism is, is the idea of the proverbial throw the baby out with the bathwater. And that's what we saw happen with the Reformation. They threw a lot of the, they threw the baby out with the bathwater. There's a lot of stuff uh, about our faith that they threw out in reaction because it's, it's one of those things where it's like, it's all tainted, so just throw it all. Let's have a yard sale. Let's sell it all, and let's start all over again. Right, like Martin Luther, you know, Calvin, these guys, they were not saying that good works and sacraments need to be thrown out. We can't do them, right? What they were saying was, they're here. They are a result of this faith, the sacraments, the good works. Yes, right? Yeah. But it's not reactionary. Oh, well, the sacraments, and they, they got corrupted. We just can't have them. That wasn't what they were doing, right? Yeah, Martin Luther didn't set out to destroy the Catholic Church no. or ruin the Catholic. He wanted to see it reform Absolutely. and work within the structure. And so we see reactionism happening here. How do we know that? Well, in the Protestant circles, over 30,000 denominations worldwide, you think we might have a problem with reactionism? 30,000. And, and, and you can see, you can actually trace... The reacts, this, this pattern, wherever it is. You can trace the pattern even by the way people name their denomination. The Christian and Missionary Alliance is a reaction. It's a reaction to churches who are not sending out people. Isn't that ironic? I don't know if you ever thought about that. So we're going to be allied with the Christians or in the missionaries or however that works. Wait a minute, are missionaries Christians or Christians? <laughs> right. You got the Baptists. There's some funny Baptist ones. You got the free will Baptists, and then you got the ones that really reacted and said, well, we're the united free will Baptists. And then you have somebody who been in the denomination, the Christ-sanctified holy church denomination. I mean, that's a lot. You got the Quakers and the Shakers. Like, I, I don't know who reacted to who. Um, you got regular Baptists, and you got Reformed Baptists. You got Primitive Baptists. I don't know what that word picture looks like. Uh, you got the Separate Baptists, and you got the Two Seed and the Spirit Baptists. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. I don't know what Two Seed and the Spirit Baptists really <laughs> means. I was on the couch with my wife, and I was laughing, and she wasn't laughing just like you aren't laughing. But <laughs> I thought it was funny. 
So it throws everything out with the bathwater. Uh, reactionism does. And, and what it ends up doing, it starts to make enemies of our brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, I remember growing up hearing this, um, not in my home, but hearing this in the Christian culture of this antagonism towards Catholics and would whisper about the Catholics and they're all going to hell. And, and, and I, I, I didn't know any better until I started growing up and I started meeting Catholics who loved the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I'm thinking, well, how does that work? They love Jesus. Yes, they do. <laughs> they love Jesus. How about you? I mean, now there's some doctrinal stuff you got to wade through, but Jesus says, if you love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, if, if you're all over this, you're one of mine. Amen. And we have Catholic dioceses. Yeah, I don't know if you know this. Alpha. Alpha is this. It is Romans 1.17. It is sola fide, right? Faith alone. That's Alpha. And, and the Vatican has said, we love the Alpha. We want Alpha in all our dioceses all around the world. They made a global edict. You can do Alpha. And you're like, what is Alpha about? Alpha is the Greek word for beginning, and it just talks about how do you have faith in Jesus? It's 10 weeks, and it just helps unroll all that stuff. The diocese in the Cleveland area, Norm actually Yeah, found my mom, out. I was talking to her, I'm like, so I'm like, oh, you know, because she's at the T, my mom's Catholic, but here doing TTP. And I said, we've got this other program that it's really just incredible. It's growing and stuff. And she's like, well, what is it? I said, it's Alpha. She's like, we love Alpha. And I'm like, what? Do we know we're talking the same thing, right? And she's like, yeah. She's like, we kind of just made it official-ish. She's like, but we've been doing Alpha. We love Alpha. And I'm like, oh, awesome. And all of a sudden, this now, what do you do with that? If you throw everything out and overcorrect, it leads you in a, an imbalance. And you're off. And now you're hating and reacting against reacting against brothers and sisters. And so here's, here's the last thing. This idea of, of lazy. What causes drift as well? Laziness. So you got this humanism over the centuries. You see that millennia. You see power in the politics. You see that over the last two centuries. Reactionism. Laziness. This is the last one. And you saw it with the priesthood. Uh, they took away from the church, the people, the ability to think and, and to read all that stuff. And a lot of them were like, all right. And then some people came along. It still happens today. You ever thought the thought, if the pastor doesn't show up, it doesn't count? <laughs> Just saying. Do we believe in the priesthood of all believers, believers or don't we? Mm. Do you have the Holy Spirit just as much as I do? Right? Yes, we Amen. do believe in the priesthood of all believers. See how it creeps in? You're like, ow, wasn't liking that, ooh. Like, that's how this all happens. So laziness is this idea of saying, just feed me, feed me, and tell me what to say, and tell me what to think, and I'm good. And we just don't, we don't do that. We can't do that. And God calls us to think clearly and to think theologically and so that means you may have to take a class like norm teaches and learn words that you've never heard of and old dudes that are dead that you've never heard of but it helps inform your faith so that you can think clearly especially in the last two weeks because i've had more conversations with people that's healthy you know how many people came up to me and said scott you were not thinking clearly two weeks ago <laughs> that tells me this drift is not happening it's a good thing it really is. Stinks a little bit, 
going to try to watch my words a little bit more, which is not a bad thing. Amen? Amen. Right? So here's the thing. As we look at this, this message is like, how do I do a takeaway? What's my takeaway on this? The takeaway is, are you drifting? And, and drifting, how do you know where you are theologically? Are you really engaged? Have you learned? Are you growing? Are you expanding? Are you pushing up against things and making sure that, hey, yeah, wait a minute. I, I, I'm looking at all these things and making sure that this does not drift. Sola fide, faith alone in Christ. That is where we stand. There's a video, if you want to watch Luther, Martin Luther, watch that movie. It's called Luther. There's an old one and a new one. I'd recommend the new one. But it shows this whole dramatic thing all out. You can rent it um, on iTunes or whatever, I don't know, whatever movie. But let's be a church that it could be said this church is always engaging and always sharpening and always pushing each other to make sure that we're not drifting from what we would say is orthodox Christianity, the tens, right? We're, we're a ten on this, and, and this will be my last point, and, and here's a zero. And, and the call to ten being, I die for this. Zero meaning, I don't give a rip about this. You can say it, great, I don't care. And where are you? So faith in Christ alone, sola fide, I'm a 10. Norm's a 10. Obedience that comes out of faith, we're a 10. God is sovereign and organizes all this stuff. I mean, whatever, how do you spell that? Uh, he's sovereign. I'm not a speller. I'm a 10. I'm the sovereign. Um, free will, I'm a 10. Now, how these things play out, Sean, Sean, I'm praying for his soul because he doesn't agree with me. And I don't know if he's here. There he is. Where Sean is, where Lynn is, where Norm is on some of these things, how do you explain sovereign will of God, free will of God, and how those all work together? The, some of those things we're not going to understand. They're eternal concepts that we don't get. And so we're not tens on these things, but we pray for each other, right? Does that make sense? And we a, engage in a it. A test of laziness, right? If you're one, if you are, is there's a scale here, right? You're not a 10 on everything. The stuff that you're not, do you just leave it on the scale where it is and forget about it? Or do you wrestle with it, struggle with it, and figure out which way it moves? We're talking about righteousness and justification there today. Big words. If, if you're sitting out there going, I'm not really sure what those are, but I feel like I should believe in it, where's it at on your scale? Are you seeking after it to figure out what righteousness is? Learn more about justification. Or are you just going to let what Scott says be your theology on that? Let's pray. God, uh, you call us to think, study to show yourselves approved under God, a workman, a workwoman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Lord, would you give us that, that mentality? Would you put that calling into our hearts and our minds as we go out from here? that we would study, that we would examine, that you would be able to say of fresh water. That is a church that always was checking to see whether they were in line or drifting. I just pray that blessing over us. I pray that that would be the legacy of our church and our lives and our families is teaching and passing on this faith that can be tested and pushed and examined. I pray, Lord, that you would keep us tight to you and this idea of salvation by faith in you alone. Amen.